Welcome to my mom's podcast. Hi, I'm Marisa Calderon, and you're listening to the Early Childhood Journeys podcast. I'm capturing the early childhood journeys of educators, including discussions and strategies on best practices for children, birth through third grade, and sharing them here for you. All right, welcome everybody. This is another episode of the Early Childhood Journeys podcast, and I am lucky to bring you guys someone that comes into your classroom. If you're a teacher, this is probably, well, I'll let her explain her role. How about that? Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Of course. Um, my name is Catherine Norwood, and currently I serve as a reading interventionist at a K-6 elementary school. And uh, really kind of the broad brushstroke of what my capacity is responsible for is providing interventions to K-6 students within the realm of reading, those interventions are designated as being very intensive interventions in a response to intervention model or RTI model. Those would be tier three interventions. Um, They are exclusively pull out in nature. So I do not work with students within their uh, general ed classroom. Those students uh, come to me in a separate classroom at some point during the day. Which is actually really lucky because I know I've run into paraprofessionals in your same type of field that are sometimes using the hallway or some just little obscure room in some school somewhere. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I was telling Catherine that when I walked into a room, I'm like, oh my God, this is great. You have such awesome space here to do your work. Yeah, uh, we're, I'm very fortunate in that regard that I do have a full-fledged classroom space um, and have we have a body of instructional assistants that we really make up a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned the hallways or any nook and corner mm-hmm. of, a cl- of a school. Um, sometimes we have to deal with, you know, what is possible in a physical environment. We have a really large schools. So we're able to accommodate on a larger scale level, but having my own classroom and instructional assistants, having this as their space as well, it really builds a broader um, community to the entirety of a school. Sometimes separate programs, whether it's special education or some type of intervention program in any content area, speech, those types of things, it can be almost an add-on effect Mm -hmm. because a building isn't designed necessarily from, you know, the inception point to accommodate those different types of non-classroom specialists. So the fact that we have such a large building, we don't have to manage that type of situation. And, And again, the students have as much as a seamless process of transitioning from their regular classroom to a non uh, gen ed setting and that's really important because it yeah. builds their comfort and continuity throughout yeah. the day yeah absolutely i want to give our audience too a little background on my connection with you so um catherine i met her through the kindergarten experience through our social and emotional um session we did a series of three to four um, social and emotional development in kindergarten sessions with the Lessie group, myself and Debbie um, Everett. And through that session, we connected about just the behavioral needs of the children that mm-hmm. we serve and 
how difficult it can be to shift our way of thinking and how we approach children that have some challenging behavior. And quite honestly, a lot of the times um, with those sessions, it, it really just comes down to, um, it comes back to the adult. It comes back to the adult, um, our own biases and our own perceptions and the way that we were raised on how to deal with some challenging behavior. So I know um, after you took that session, if I remember correctly, I think you had some good strategies after that. Um, you seem pretty appreciative of it. Definitely. Of, of the whole after the end and the conversations that we had. Right. Yes, um, definitely. Are you still using some of the content within your, your, your piece with the children? Yes, most certainly. And, you know, um, I learned a lot from the series of those trainings. And I had a really important takeaway that I've used not only in my own teaching with students in small groups and such, but um, I've translated to the work that I do on our school child study team. And I do teach ECE courses. So it's been something that I've been able to mm. communicate and dialogue with my own early childhood students. And that was that, um, you know, a lot of times what our brain can rationally think gets almost juxtaposed with what our heart is feeling in that moment. Yeah. And at that point in time, which was last year, I was really conflicted with recognizing that it was a challenge for me to not be judgmental of parents who were the, of the persons who were yeah. the parents of the children that I serve. And I was really grappling with, again, my rational brain knows for a variety of reasons, one, content knowledge, you know, B, just life experiences that I should not be evaluative of different family structures and parenting techniques in that manner. And by evaluative, I mean really yeah, judging, yeah, judging, right? Yeah. And I was still emotionally struggling with that. And um, yourself and the other facilitator really got me over that mountain by saying this. Sometimes when you are an educator and you really care about your students, it's very difficult to get your care and this judgment misplaced, mm -hmm. right? To misplace your care through this vehicle of judging parents and family structures. And just that humanity which yeah. was provided to me really was instrumental in just helping me um, do more than recognize, just go out and practice that and yeah. say, I know I care about these students, but I have to have the same degree of care for their parents. Yeah. And that was kind of a stumbling block for me at that point in time. So, yeah, that is so powerful. We don't recognize that, that discomfort, that's where change occurs. Right. That's where in change that occurs. Zone. Yeah. It's important to have discomfort yeah. at times. Yeah. So that we know that we need to check that and, and reevaluate that and see how we can grow from that. Right. Um, now, take me back. How many years have you been doing, I guess, this position and were you always a reading interventionist? Uh, this is my third year at this school as a reading interventionist. Um, it's my 28th year of teaching and I've had the great privilege of being um, kind of the full circle in education 
I won't say full circle because <laughs> that's an untruth. <laughs> I haven't done everything, but I've done a lot of different pieces of education. And um, I've been a, I've developed reading intervention programs in the past, and I've been an instructional coach in the past. I've trained um, teachers, supervised um, different capacities, different capacities, exactly. So induction programs, things of that nature, taught undergrad, taught community college and taught graduate school, all within um, elementary yeah. education and then reading as a more um, focused. focused topic. Exactly. Do you remember your first education job? I sure do. I always love to ask this. <laughs> it's a great question. And you know, it, uh, well, in me, and I would assume for everyone who's a teacher, really elicits a lot of different feelings. Um, I feel very fortunate that for me it elicits really positive ones, which is not necessarily always the case for each educator. But it was in Winslow, Arizona, and I taught fifth grade. Um, Winslow is a rural community, small mm -hmm. town, great place because it's it's very diverse and it's also a very tight knit community. Yes. So yeah, there were a number of times where, you know, my, somebody drove past my husband who was driving down the frontage road and he didn't wave <laughs> <laughs> and I heard about it or my husband cashed a check at the bank and <laughs> mm. I was informed how much it was forward to the penny, you know, That's things hysterical. like that. And just the richness of, um, being able to serve and get to know families through multiple children that they have. So working with their siblings, working with ex extended members of the family and such. And it's, it was great. I was able to teach there for seven years wow. and uh, had our first child there. And uh, my husband worked in the, in the near community as well. And it was just really fantastic. I got to do a lot of things that I think, um, you know, 28 years ago, the face of education was a bit different. We didn't have standards. There were no standards. Yeah. Um, I had, at the time, we bred and trained Rottweilers. And my wow. principal was like, not a problem. Bring your Rottweilers in. If you want them as therapy dogs. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's okay by me. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was wonderful. That's awesome. We've had some adventures um, in that area um, with my colleague, Debbie, in our travels, Winslow and Holbrook yes. area. Yeah. Very absolutely. dedicated professionals yeah. in Northern Arizona. Yeah. Absolutely. Throughout Arizona, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What brought you here to the Valley, I guess, and then to eventually here to um, your current position? Sure. Uh, well, both my husband and I wanted a change professionally. He wanted to do different things in the company that he was with and continues to work with. And I um, wanted to explore more of post-secondary education as far as teaching within that field. I had been doing a lot of that work in Northern Arizona with NAU and Coconino Community College. And at the time, um, we were... Second post-secondary ed was really beginning to explore and develop online programs. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was interested in that and thought, well, this is a great time to do that. And Phoenix metro area has got to have something going on and was reading um, an article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. And mm -hmm. it was like, Rio Salado College is starting this, you know, yeah. within their ed program. And I'm like, 
I got to get down there. <laughs> so um, that kind of began a new career path for me and then uh, raised kids and did a lot of, like I said, um, other things in between in the K-12 world and also post-secondary. And then when our youngest graduated high school three years ago, I thought, I need to get back into literacy. I really need to hone my craft as an educator, as someone who is in literacy. And I didn't want to get trapped in kind of that proverbial Ivy Tower situation. Sure. I was feeling rusty, to be really honest with yeah. you. And I I had always been engaged in the K-12 world, even with my own teaching, while I was 100% doing, you know, the post-secondary stuff. I found time a few hours a week to work in some capacity, reading type yes. capacity. It's not the same game. Yeah. And you have to be, you know, fully invested in, in a, in a regular professional capacity to kind of get everything because there's so many moving parts. So I made that decision, found Guerrero, walked through the front door, met the principal and was like, it's a very special school. So it's been great. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to get back to that though, because somehow you were able to to make that pivot, right? Did you have, I'm just thinking about that educator right now that's at that point in their career. Mm. And maybe there was a mentor or maybe, um, something, a, a workshop that maybe you could have, you attended, what was it that helped you uh, make that decision and to say, okay, I want to do something else now. I want to, I want to hone in on this, on this passion that I have for literacy. Right. You know, um, collectively for all of those pivot points to kind of um, utilize your term there it, throughout my career, they've always come at a place where, um, something new is taking shape in education. So that, and then the other prong of it is just internally, um, feeling like I need to go deeper with something. And sometimes going deeper means staying right there and maybe doing program development or um, your own you know, advanced studies and things of that nature. And then sometimes it's getting out of that particular context and going into a new one. So for me, what really helps support my ability to do both of those things is staying current within the entire field yeah. of education. So it's kind of a function of, I have to stay current with the, the, the more narrow scope of what is my particular practice for me as a within literacy and even going even more narrow, you know, with being a reading interventionist. But then I also have a responsibility as a professional to stay current with all of education. Which is the practice itself. The practices. So, you know, pedagogy mm -hmm. and what's happening politically. Um, all of these things really have this integrated effect in education from a national level to a state level to your local level, all the way down to your local ed agency, yeah. ergo your yeah. school that you work at. So um, being, staying current in those multifaceted ways also puts you in the right frame of mind to think, hmm, 
how can I take what I'm learning and what I can see coming on the horizon and get invested with program development or writing grants or connecting with other people at my school that I might not have connected with in the past? What are they doing that I can offer my yeah. support with as well? Because that stuff's bi-directional really, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that if you want to have people, if you want to have people build trust in who you are and what you believe in and the projects you want to take on and develop. As an educator, yeah. Exactly. But you've got to go out there and first say, hey, here here I am. How can I serve you? What are you doing? And then you create those relationships and that does build trust and um, it just makes a stronger team. That collaborative, um, that collaborative spirit, I feel like. We talk a lot about that with um, with our teachers and um, just because a lot of times we might feel isolated within our positions. So how can we create those connections? Right. Um, and hopefully you have a good team within your school. And because we know, we, we know those stories where maybe you might be a new, a new educator in your position and um, you might be going against the grain. I know um, Lauren and I had this conversation with some of her ideas as well uh, when she first came on. And Lauren is another educator, kindergarten educator, actually, um, that was on the, a previous podcast uh, for our listeners. So I think that's really important, those points that you're mentioning about, you know, showing that to the others on how I can be uh, of service as far as uh, a, another connection and a resource so that we can get connected and learn from there. Right. Absolutely. To your, to your colleagues. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's also a function of when you have that type of collaboration and collegiality that not only does it get stuff launched yeah. off the ground, yeah. Um, but it also serves you individually as a professional because sometimes we need the cheerleading of other people to go, no, stick to your gut on this one mm -hmm. and stick to your brain on this one, right? You mm -hmm. have the evidence mm -hmm. and the research behind you. And it's really important that you, you know, continually persist with your, your building administrator or your district yeah. administration. This is really worthwhile. Um, and you know, like I say, sometimes, you know, you can do it on your own, but why would you want to necessarily, yeah, right? Why, why not tap into your yeah. resources? Absolutely. Um, so you told us a little bit about, as far as being, uh, the last three years being an, a reading interventionist, I want, I want to address two points with you. At one point, I remember the word interventionist. You, I don't know if you just didn't like that word. I do not. Um, and I was thinking about what's an alternative? Could it be reading strategist? Um, you know, I feel I, I, I absolutely understand um, the con the negative connotation that it gets because it always seems to be when it's something's going wrong that that's when you get called in. Um, and in, in my background, it, it's I have a different um you know, connotation to it because I worked in the social services sector. Mm. And so um, to me, it was intervention is because that I see an, an unmet need going on and I need to um, support that. But I thought that was a really um, curious about that. And I'm like, what about strategists? You know, reading strategists. I love that. So I know um, you had mentioned that before. Do you still feel that way? I do. And um, I 
thank you for remembering that. Um, I feel like it's limiting. Not only does it oftentimes carry a negative connotation, but I also feel like it's limiting. And just in your own description of intervention, it was when people have a need because somehow they're not um, performing at some general expectancy, right? But we, if a person has a need, then it also goes, you know, the same logic applies that if you have a need and it's an intervention, if you're below a general expectancy, Mm. what wouldn't an intervention also be there for someone who has advanced needs, right? You're above those general expectancies. So in that regard, I think sometimes it does create this negative connotation in many ways, that's one of them, but that it can be limiting because we're not thinking, oh, I have students who are (coughs) above these benchmarks that are set and they're fine. I'm not going to do anything with them or I'm not going to, you know, work with another person who's in the English language arts realm or the reading realm and such. But most important to me, I just feel like when we um, have this agency as a school, that we are a community of professionals, a community of um, classified staff, we're a community of (laughs) many people who are outside of the classroom, of students, and of parents. And if we're really working to have parent engagement versus parent volunteerism, then that implies that we should be having regular and active dynamic conversations with their parents because they are key agents, right? Yep. The parent is the child's first and most important teacher forever. So I feel like if I say, well, this is our reading intervention program, or I'm a reading interventionist, that that communicates something to parents that I don't want them to walk away with feeling like, what? My kid isn't that's the misconception yes and I always ask that what's the biggest misconception of your position and so I was reflecting on that and I'm I'm glad you are addressing it yeah we don't want it to be that kind of misconception right Um, and oftentimes parents walk into a school any school any parent might not have the greatest most positive schooling experiences in and of who they are as an individual, or they might feel like they might feel some degree of um, discomfort or feeling overwhelmed or intimidated, or just, you know, they don't know the process of something. They, they don't navigate it on a daily basis. So to me, that's really paramount to, to what I do. The the body of my work as a professional educator Mm -hmm. is to, make people feel comfortable parents and students and the people that I work with as well. So yeah. Yeah. Really um, partnering up with your parents. I like the, the strategies one though. I'm Good. thinking strategies and skills. I want to make sure we address that. I know that was important too. Um, now you mentioned parents. What about any advice for parents? Advice for parents. So, um, well, I am a parent too. Mm. I, here's what I always uh, say to, to parents out there. Number one, have fun with your kids. Okay. It is fleeting. <laughs> when you are having babies and raising small children, everybody tells you that, but you think, oh yeah, but 20 years from now, well, it goes really fast. Yeah. So as the mom of adult kids, 
but have fun with them. Because if you're having fun with them, then you're going to do all these other key things on this very intuitive, you know, uh, easygoing manner. And by that, I mean, play with your kids. Give them lots of time to play in life, unstructured play, but play with them, engage with them, because that is this natural framework that in and of itself elicits all these other wonderful things, like talking with your children, Mm -hmm. letting them be the directors of the conversation. I think sometimes when when I have conversations with parents about talk with your kids, I try to emphasize having the child be the agent, the initiator, because sometimes talking with your kids can turn into lecturing your kids <laughs> or dictating to them the topics of the conversation and how it's going to roll out. So really letting kids take the lead and being keen observers of your children that if you are playing with them, know when you've overstayed your welcome. Right. Yeah. When it's time for you to step out, you're there to play, have fun with them, let them lead, but also let them solve their own problems and explore um, all these things that in large part really are just so we're so predisposed on a biological basis for yeah. these things. But as parents, we fiercely love our children and um, we also have to get through every day and put food on the table and people have all kinds of different things happening in their lives. And so parenting is really stressful for a lot of Do different Do you remember um, what your biggest, when you, when your children were, were younger, because I think you said your last one just graduated high school. He's now a junior at oh, ASU. Yep. Yeah. So do you remember what would be, how do you decompress? Like if when you were with um, two ways. So when you were coming up through, you know, your education, your positions, and I'm just thinking about that teacher that was, that's in the same boat, maybe having a couple of kids themselves, how did you manage to decompress and to manage that? Um, For me, um, I found a way to take my kids out of doors. That's not always something feasible for parents. So that's why I say, I, I really believe this. Take time to play with your kids and that um, if you can give your kids and yourself uninterrupted time, turn off the TV, turn off cell phones, laptops, computers, all of that stuff is great, but everything in moderation and there's Mm -hmm. a time and a place for everything. So enjoy your family. Sometimes as parents, we get really stressed because we have to move our kids from A to B. And that might mean I got to get them to these extracurricular things, or I have to get dinner made, or I have a ton of work that I have to do after my kids go to bed, all this stuff. There's no one formula for doing anything. And just know what works best for your family on any given day, because any given day is different. That's how I decide. I wasn't always de-stressed on every, right? (laughs) That's not true to say that. But in large part, I feel like my husband and I really did enjoy our children through every stage, even adolescence, their Mm -hmm. adolescence, um, because we found time to take a five-minute walk around the block. If that's what you can do, it's five minutes that's worthwhile. Just spend time together and don't try to fit it into any shape. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just did that this morning with my preschool child. 
you like you need to get out of the house. So you need to get out right. Of the house. Yes. Go play with the toys at Target. You don't have to buy any of them. <laughs> that worked for me when I was penny pinching. Now, what about now? How do you, with your work currently, you know, here, how are you decompressing? How are you managing it? Um, so that's an interesting and important question. I think that I go through periods of time where it feels more where de-stressing feels more accessible to me than okay. at other times. Um, sometimes I anticipate periods during an academic school year that are just going to be crunch mode, right? Okay. It could be because we have multiple um, summative assessments, whether that's through the state or it's that time. the district, yeah. exactly. Or it could be that um, I've got a lot of, you know, balls in the air because of programs that are being developed and things like that. So I can, I, I have things that I expect and I literally will do what a lot of experts tell educators to do, right? Breathe, take some time to just collect yourself, breathe in and out, just regulate your breath. Um, I even find that like I had a conversation with some new instructional assistants today and our title specialist, and it's been a really full day and I was out of off campus for the first half of the day. So I was in that catch up mm -hmm, mode. And then mm -hmm. there were a few fires that happened that I had to try to put out and things like that. So I'm having this conversation and I can feel myself kind of getting agitated with things. And I'm like, okay, just, you can't start, you know, vocal inhaling and exhaling yeah. in the middle of this meeting but i use the old go low and slow with your speech <laughs> it works if you've never tried it before that's great try that one on for size it's really helpful at least it works for me yeah so have a few things that you can do um i find that like i said this one might not be appropriate in this context so i'm going to pull up the one that can be more internalized and nobody else knows it except yeah. me so yeah. to speak so that's great i wanted to um kind of end with what do you what are you working on right now with your practice I, I always ask the teachers if there's some kind of little small goal or some kind of something that they're trying to fine-tune in their practice right now is there anything that for you that comes out you're trying to work yeah. on yeah um, thank you for asking that because I'm really excited about um, doing kind of uh, two things. Uh, the big idea is supporting students with their own self-assessment and self-monitoring of their reading process. Mm. And process meaning the multiple pieces that come into reading. So um, reading is such a complex process. Yeah. There's so, so many different things happening, but a significant contributory element of any person being a highly proficient skilled reader is being able to um, monitor your thinking so that metacognition thinking about your thinking yeah. and being able to self-assess so I've been doing for a few weeks now um, interviews with students when they're in that so when I'm working with a small group of students and something crops up organically and drawing them to that interview process where I facilitate their ability to think aloud. So using that particular strategy That's great. of 
what they are thinking, but especially the shifts in their thinking. So when we talk about reading and I'm moving through a text and I'm reading it silently or out loud, when I we talk about miscues or analysis, miscue analysis. Mm-hmm. And so that's really specific to certain types of instructional reading, instructional um, strategies and right. things like that. But in general, the idea of that miscue is the person being able to identify, hey, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking that? When did I experience that? And then being able to talk themselves through it because we want that type of self-monitoring to become a skill. So moving something from a strategy to a skill, but also acknowledging that even though something has become skill-based from a strategy, they will certain things will always remain as strategies because we the fluency of using strategies yeah, is yeah. that I have to know when to use which ones and why. So that's been really fascinating work of late and just totally rewarding to hear what kids say. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to mention for our community, uh, listeners, educators, or parents? Anything else? Um, I would just say if you can get into a school, even if it's just to walk in, meet teachers, observe, if you want to volunteer, fantastic, that's even better. But even if it's just having a conversation with someone that you know is an educator at the K-12 level, do that because sometimes there are misconceptions of school as a whole, but especially early childhood education and particularly before the kindergarten years begin, that preschool is just glorified babysitting. Mm. But that's what these, you know, professionals, and I'm doing that in air quotes, um, do day in and day out. And that um, just talk to people because every one of us, if we're a voting age and we're a registered voter and we believe in voting, we can make informed decisions about who we vote for and what we vote for. And I certainly respect that every person is entitled to their own rights and perceptions about things, but be informed. And if you haven't experienced early childhood ed situations, classrooms at the kindergarten level, first grade, second grade, third grade, and preschool, or schools as a whole. Go out there and meet people. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you putting that that plug in because we need to create that awareness. Yeah. We need to create that awareness. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Marisa again. Make sure you are liking, sharing, subscribing, posting, leaving us a review on whichever listening platform you use. We're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, and we're on Stitcher Radio now. Really appreciate everybody's reviews and sharing out our episodes as they come out. And I look forward to hearing your feedback from this episode. Thanks.